This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Today we jump right into the story of Israel, starting with the father of faith, Abram. But as we will see, He is not the wonderful example of faith that we often like to think of him as, at least not at first. We often read our own ideas of who we like to think of Abraham as back into the earliest parts of the story, and that causes us to miss important details. So let's not do this. Let's hear what the text is saying. We're going to start at the end of chapter 11 as it leads us in to the beginning of chapter 12, because remember, the chapter divisions... The paragraph divisions in your Bible are extremely recent additions, and they're not always uh, the best thing. So we're going to be a little bit more lenient than your Bible may want us to be. So in chapter 11, we'll be starting in verse 27, it says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So at the end of last episode, in verse 26 of chapter 11, we heard that Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. After hearing this, we immediately get the Toledot, or the generations of Terah, It says that Haran died, literally, in the Hebrew, it says, upon the face of Terah, which would sound odd in English, of course, so it gets translated as, in the presence of. But this is the first time this phrase in Hebrew is used in this way, so we shouldn't overlook it, because chances are it sounded weird to the original hearers as well. Normally in Hebrew, the concept, the presence of, is literally rendered to the eyes of, or to the face of. But here we have, as I said, over or upon the face of. Perhaps this is to signal some sort of bad news, if you will. 
In the Hebrew, Haran comes from the word mountain, and Terah means a wild goat. So it sounds ridiculous for it to say that the mountain died upon the face of the goat. Am I right? It's backwards. If there was a goat and it died, it would be dying on the mountain, not the other way around, because that doesn't make any sense. It's backwards. But that's what the Hebrew says. I think this is intentional by the authors. Perhaps this is some sort of idiomatic idea, an idiom, perhaps to say simply that this is a bad thing happening here. Uh, It's a bad deal for a man to die before his father, which is what's happening, or maybe to say that the death of Haran was upon his father's face is to say that it simply bereaved him. Regardless, this seems to be an unfortunate situation, and I'm choosing to interpret the text in this way, so what else does it say? Well, it says that the second brother, Nahor, took Milka, the daughter of Haran, Nahor's very own niece, as his wife. This is not okay. In fact, similar to Cain's dynasty, several chapters ago, this seems to be a very dynastic, very kingly practice to take one's own niece as a wife. And what do you know? The wife that Nahor takes, the daughter of Haran, his deceased brother, like I said, her name is Milka. Milka is the feminine form of the word Melek, which means king. Haran's other daughter, Iska, probably means to see in the sense of having foresight. How much more telling is it that when Terah leaves with his family out of Ur, he only brings Abram and Sarai and Lot. He leaves behind his son, his third son Nahor and Haran's daughters with him. They then settle in Haran, which is probably the mountainous regions north of the Syro-Arabian desert. So I think the text is alluding to the fact that we've got a bad situation happening here. A man dies, and the man's brother takes the dead man's daughter for his wife. Thankfully, today in our culture, we can still pick up on the idea that an uncle taking his niece as a wife and producing children is not a not a good thing. Right. Yeah. And also, speaking of uh, the uh, the desert. Uh, we are introduced to the barrenness of Abram's wife, Sarai, uh, before she becomes Sarah. Now, these are two different names, very different names, and uh, we have to pay attention to that and the name change. But you have to listen to the irony. Abram's name would obviously suggest progeny, but his wife is childless. To reinforce this, the name Sarai means my princes which not only signifies a progeny of powerful men, but also royalty. But her womb is barren and childless. This image of the barren womb and the impotent men is a recurring theme throughout the scriptural narrative, signifying God's total control over his progeny of promise. The book of Isaiah really hones in on this parallel. Namely, in the book of Isaiah, Zion refers to a parched land, a barren land, which is a stand-in for Jerusalem. Only God can give life to this barren land, just as God was the only one who could give life to Sarah's barren womb. Listen to the first part of Isaiah 51. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her.
thanksgiving in the voice of song. So we are already getting hints from the plot about what Abram and Sarai will represent in this narrative. Their names are lofty, like the Babylonian culture they come from, but they have nothing to show for it. After their name changes in chapter 17, their names are belittled, but they have the progeny of promise through Isaac. So let us keep that in mind and hear the beginning of Abram's story. But before we move on, though, I want to note the important bit where we hear that even though Terah led his family to Canaan, they settled in Haran before they get there. You even see a little nudge after the death of Terah where God will command Abram to leave the land of his father to the land he will show him. Abram has a rocky start, and we are preparing a pretty scandalous story about a man who is the father of the faithful and an example for us, yet the story does not shy away from his moments of distrust, adultery, deception, and violence. Right. Think about every time we have a political election here in the United States, one of the things that political opponents will do to each other is go after the sins of their opponent's past. And when they do that, the hope is that the scandal of it will defame their opponent and their opponent will drop out of the election. So how telling is it that the most important characters, the ones who we follow in the scriptural story, are scandalized before they are transformed? That's what we're about to hear. So please, please, please don't close your ears and hear this character of Abram as the perfect example of a faithful servant that you want him to be, that he does become, because the sinful nature that he represents in his earliest days are extremely important. And they linger. They linger. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want to point out a couple of thematic things going on in the original language and word choice of the authors. In verse 1, we have the very powerful phrase that our ears have been trained to hear as the instigating event of motion. Except here it's a little different than back in Genesis 1 because we know exactly what God, we know exactly who we are dealing with. In the Hebrew it says, Vayomer Yahweh el Avram, and the Lord said to Abram. It's very powerful, functionally powerful. It makes our characters listen, and it should make us listen, because we've been trained to hear it and know that something is about to go down. So what did Yahweh say to Abram? Often the command gets translated to, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. But I think this is another valuable place to consider the way that Hebrew thinks, if you will. In the Hebrew, it is more literally saying, walk yourself from your country and from your family and from the house of your father. God isn't just telling Abraham where to go. Quite the opposite, actually. He's just saying, get to walking away from what you know to the land which I will make you see. The Hebrew is much more evocative than our English makes it sound. God is not a GPS 
In this story, he is looking more and more like a shepherd. When he calls, the sheep follow, regardless of whether or not the sheep knows what land the shepherd is taking him to. In verse 2, we have a very interesting word. It is one of those Dr. Seussisms, like Blaze talked about in one of our earlier episodes, where the usual conventions of the languages used are thrown out in order to whittle down the specificity of the author's intent. This is so unique, in fact, that it is the only occurrence of this specific word in the entire Bible. Verse 2 starts with God saying, And I will make you a great nation. The phrase, and I will make you, is actually two words smushed together, the verb and the direct object. It is translated fine. I don't have any issue here with how it's rendered, but normally this phrase would be two words in Hebrew, something like, but it's not. It's taken both of those words and smushed them together to say, which again is very unique. Perhaps by smushing the verb and the direct object together, the pronoun, which represents Abram, and the verb being the verb acted by God, it's to emphasize that it is purely, exclusively, God acting to make Abram into what God himself wants Abram to be, which ultimately is for God's own purposes. And it just so happens that it is to be a great nation with a great name that will bless everyone. What's more is that in this same verse, two other verbs which are attributed to God in this narration spoken by him receive the same unique treatment and are also both one-of-a-kind words. Those are the words for I will bless you and I will make you great. I won't go into it much further because hopefully I've made it clear that what the authors are trying to say uh, is that God has total control and the fact that the coming greatness of Abram and his descendants can in no way be attributed to Abram himself, but to God. That's not necessarily a challenging concept, but I do think it's helpful to point to the language uh, that constructs the Bible itself uh, and how simply the words used allude to this concept that I hope we are all familiar with. The last and most important part of this section is that God tells Abram that he will be a blessing. And in the next verse, that all the families of the earth will be blessed in, with, and by him. This is a big deal now that we've heard of, you know, the calamities of man and how they return to calamity even after the flood and their preservation by God. This character of Abram must be extremely important, and he is being set up in a new and interesting way, so we must pay attention before we hear more about his character. Right. God isn't promising to make Abram's name great because Abram is just that cool. In fact, it's not even Abram's current lofty name that'll be remembered, but his belittled name, Abraham, the father of the emaciated lamb. And we'll get more in depth on that etymology, but the image is clear. It's not Abram who is the focus of his literary existence, but his singular offspring, the suffering servant who is slain as a sin offering as the prophet Isaiah discusses, and as Paul links with Christ. Hear Galatians. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now the same is true for the blessing and the cursing. It's not as if Abram has earned God's favor in any way, and therefore God is so impressed with him that he makes this deal with him. 
No, Abram has simply been called out by God to be an instrument of salvation for all the families of the earth. Basically, all the tribes mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Again, even this story early on in scripture, we have the Abrahamic promise being made not to the Jews alone, but the Gentiles as a whole. This is not something that Paul made up, but something that he correctly and aptly understood by diligently studying the scriptures he had access to. So what people are blessing or cursing are not Abram the person, but his progeny of promise. So really quickly, while we're here, I also want to touch on the name Lot, as we are about to hear more about him in the following passage. In Hebrew, this word is lut, which has the connotation of cleaving tightly to something. We can see this functionally as he is loyally enjoined to Abram on his journey. Notice that God never mentions Abram's family members in his command to leave ur but Lut travels with him all the way to, to, to Negev. Later on, we hear that they part ways. Lut chooses the land to the east of Jordan because it is well watered like Egypt. So if you know scripture, you know that this can't be a good thing. While he cleaves loyally to Abram, his later fault is that he also cleaves to the false comfort of Egypt. Not good. Let us be aware of the meaning of his name as we continue. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At this time, the Canaanites were in that land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and A on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. So when Abram finally leaves Haran, we hear that he took with him many possessions and people that he acquired in that land. Rowdy will discuss the particularities of the Hebrew in that passage, but I just want to touch on this in English first. This is really striking because even though Abram is being called out of the city and into desert life, he is still practicing the customs of a city dweller. He has servants and possessions, and he is hardly living as a shepherd at this point in his life. We see how this will become a problem later, but to any hearer of Scripture, this should be a red flag. But remember, Abram's righteousness wasn't about how perfect he was because he was blatantly and scandalously imperfect. Rather, it was his faith in a promise that he wasn't even going to witness as a living man that was accounted to him as righteousness. So Abram is not a literary hero in the classical sense. He is an incredibly flawed individual whose one redeeming factor was that he obeyed the word of God. He has a rocky start, especially in the story we'll hear next week about his descent into Egypt, but he remains a striking example for all of us who must persevere in that faith, yet like Abram, the beginning is always rocky. 
but with a continued effort to hear the Word of God and to change our behavior accordingly, maturity will foster within us, and if we keep our diligence, we will also be exemplars of faith. Not because we earn anything or that we become better, but we consume the scripture to the point where the words that will come out of our mouths are not our own, but God's. Yeah, and I'd like to push a couple of thematic points here. In verse 5, I'll remind you, it says, Abram took Sarai and Lot and all their possessions that they had possessed in Haran, and the people they acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Blaze already explained how Abram was not told to bring his family and all of his crap with him, but rather was commanded singularly to leave Haran and start walking. This is important. We cannot assume that God was probably okay with Abram bringing his family because we don't hear that in the story. However, in the previous story of Genesis with the flood, Noah was commanded to bring his family. So I think it is safe to assert that God would have elaborated for Abram to do so if he deemed it necessary. But like I said, Abram decides for himself that he will bring his family and all of his junk. Now, this isn't just Blaze and I being cranky and anti-materialist. Let's just look at the Hebrew. The Hebrew uses the word rachash, which is literally the word for property. And the word is used in a verbal form to emphasize the point. It is literally said, Abram took their property, which they propertied, which obviously sounds ridiculous in English. So we change the verb to acquired or gathered. But the verb is only used in Genesis. Nowhere else in the Old Testament. Everywhere else in the Old Testament it's used, it is a noun as a stand-in for the uh, concept of possession, something uh, that is possessed by a person. But it is never used as a verb, except here in Genesis. The other four times it is used in Genesis is when it is talking about characters packing up shop and moving to a new region. It's this image of them gathering all of the things which they have acquired as property and literally carrying it with them to their new land. The characters that do so are often painted negatively, so we should not think of this as normal behavior, even though this is how we Americans are. In fact, it just so happens that it is indeed challenging our very culture. These characters, who are images of us in this story, can't bring themselves to leave anything behind. They need to bring their stuff with them, like a dog who can't decide which toy to gnaw on. Jacob carries all the possessions which he claimed for himself when he flees from Laban and goes back to his father Isaac. Esau carries all his possessions when he goes into a land far away from his brother Jacob because their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And lastly, it is used for Jacob again when he takes all the possessions he possessed from the land of Canaan down to Egypt. These are the only other uses of this verb. Because, like I said, in Hebrew, it sounds extremely weird. In Hebrew, the concept possession isn't like this normally. If you wanted to say something belonged to somebody in scriptural Hebrew, it would be kol asher letim, all which was to them, or all which was for them, which often gets translated in English to all which they had, which are different, which is a different concept. Hebrew naturally reduces the concept of ownership compared to English. So here in Genesis, when we hear of the character's property-ing, while it is not a totally contrived concept in the language, it is clearly being critiqued in the scriptural story. Remember, Hebrew is not backwards compatible with English, so to think that we can translate words and phrases at all is almost arrogant, I would argue. 
What is better is to explain Hebrew in English, because by doing this, we can at least remain aware that language as a device, as a tool, is simply a matter of communicating concepts and ideas. And languages are not consistent between each other in the concepts they are communicating, especially in a situation like this, where, like English and Hebrew, we are separated by thousands of years of culture. People don't think exactly the same way that they did several thousand years ago. What's more is that despite the English translation, the Hebrew does not say that he took the people they acquired with them. It literally says he took the life which they had made, which is probably an allusion to the livestock and the slaves that they possessed for their own purposes, perhaps in the way that a farmer today brands his cattle. Abram and his family acquired life, as in livestock and slaves, which they themselves made. Again, it's hard to explain in English, but when you hear it in Hebrew, it's very clearly problematic. We then hear that they pass through the land of Shechem to the Oaks of More, which are probably just geographical indicators. This would be the regions north of Jerusalem. So Abram has entered the land of Canaan, and the passage says, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And then Yahweh appears to Abram and says, to your offspring I will give this land. Okay, wonderful. Mission accomplished. Abram made it. God told him to go and that he would show him the land he was giving to him. And here it is. God made it very clear that this is the land. This is probably where the story concludes because logically Abram will continue to dwell in this land and live off the words of God like he has done so far. Right? Next, we hear about Abram building an altar. Guess not. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, This is not a good thing, as we've just mentioned. He pitches his tent in the hill country near the cities of Bethel, and I, or A, however you're supposed to pronounce that, A-I. Both of these cities are important in the scriptural narrative, but Bethel certainly so. Bethel, or Beit El, in Hebrew means house of God, and it's referring to a temple, obviously. So this is not a good place in scripture. God does not have a house. The scriptural God is anti-temple. And actually, at this point in the story, it's not even called Bethel. The original name in the Bible was Lutz, which refers to almond trees. This change of name formally happens in the scriptural narrative during Jacob's cycle in Genesis chapter 35. This is the famous episode where Jacob is renamed Israel. In verse 14, he takes a pillar of stone and anoints it and renames Lutz to Bethel, the house of God. This was actually a really common practice among the ancient Near East, where stones were venerated and considered to be mediums of communication with the deity. Literally, the name for this practice is Betilis, which is uh, obviously from the Hebrew word Betel. We see this practice in the modern day with the Kaaba in Islam. Muslims even call the Kaaba Beit Allah, right? The Arabic version of Beit El. The roots of that practice lie within the broader cultural custom of venerating stones in a temple-like structure. And in fact, in Islamic lore, the Kaaba was first venerated by Adam and Eve as the original temple. So that connection is all over Semitic culture. I bring this up because it's important to understand the warning that the scriptural authors are setting out for us. They have spent so much time speaking against the usage of temples 
but they are preparing us for the fact that the main characters of Scripture will continuously act contrary to this admonition. Scripture is an arduous story about everyone doing the wrong things. Always. The next city we hear about is Ai, which means a heap of ruins in Hebrew, so it's definitely ominous. We get the story of why it is called by that name in Joshua 8.28, where it is the second city to be plundered by the Israelites in their quote-unquote conquest of Canaan. These names are a warning to the Israelites that if they build a temple and erect a kingdom against the command of God, their city, Jerusalem, will become a heap of ruins, and that's exactly what happens. And then in verse 9, we are told that Abram continued to walk away from the land that Yahweh clearly stated was for him and his offspring. And he journeyed on toward the Negev, which is a desert between uh, the land, the scriptural land of Canaan, which we've been talking about, and Egypt, which is where Abram is planning to sojourn. We're going to stop here because the second half of this chapter and chapter 13 all go together really well to form one cohesive story, and we don't want to break it up um, if it can be avoided. Because remember, our chapter divisions are not the best. Not all the time, at least. Join us again next week to hear what happens when Abram ignores God and continues to venture away from the land that God gave him because it isn't the nice metropolitan cityscape that Abram was hoping for. See you next week. Insha'Allah. Peace be with you all. Like the tree which is planted by the streams of the water.